Welcome to another episode of the Nuances Podcast, where we go beyond first impressions with the Asian diaspora and explore our often complicated relationships with our cultures and how they affect everything from our career choices to our views on anti-racism, disability justice, religion, feminism, LGBTQ rights, and more. I'm your host, Lazu, a new American who grew up in the only place the dodo bird ever lived, Mauritius. This is our second to last episode of season three. Today we have Charles Levan. Before we get into our conversation, here are a few terms that come up that will not be familiar if you're not in the music industry. Sync is a short form for synchronization, and it refers to synchronizing music to another medium such as video for film and TV or even podcasts. So for example, when you put music under a scene in any other medium, that's called a sync. A music supervisor is an expert who has deep knowledge of music and the business and legal side of music licensing. The music supervisor typically offers song suggestions to be used in various scenes and is also responsible for clearing the licenses from all stakeholders for the song to be used in that scene. A couple other terms, AAPI, we've used this a lot, but in case you need a reminder, AAPI stands for Asian, American, and Pacific Islander. And one expression that I personally was not familiar with is wet behind the ears, which means lacking experience or immature. Back in May, I participated in an Asian American Pacific Islander writing camp for songwriters. And through that, one of my co-writers introduced me to our guest today. Now, if you've been listening to our podcast for a while, you might notice that Charles' experience in the music industry has been kind of different from a lot of the other guests. And that just goes to show that our experiences are not monoliths. Some of us have great experiences, some of us have terrible experiences, and many of us are somewhere in between. So let's get into it. Charles Levan, CEO and owner of Blue Buddha Entertainment, LLC, specializes in sync placement for independent artists and labels, serving as a premier conduit for contemporary groundbreaking artists and repertoire. Past sync placements include Shrinking, Found, All American, This Is Us, and Grey's Anatomy, just to name a few. With over 27 years of experience in the music industry, Charles' passion in the sync space is coupled with a focus on helping artists hone their musical craft in an ever-changing entertainment world. Starting out at The Right Stuff slash EMI Capital Records in the marketing and radio promotions department, Charles' most notable work includes marketing Al Green's platinum-selling Greatest Hits album and other high-profile reissues. Charles balances his work life through an extreme passion for music, basketball, working out, and meditation to stay spiritually grounded. Charles, thank you so much for doing this. Good morning, Lazi. So good to be on the show. Thank you. So let's start with some background. Where'd you grow up and what was that like as an Asian American? I'm born and raised here in Southern California, grew up on the West Side. In the 80s, there was a lot of diverse cultures here and shared experiences, a great sense of community. My late father, he was in academia. He taught at UCLA. He always brought inclusivity, community outreach, and having a broad lens of learning through the world and our upbringing of my sister and I. So it was a good experience growing up. That's (laughs) awesome. So when did your interest in music start? I played the piano in junior high school into high school. So I played for a good four years. And from that, I discovered I had a great ear for music, my love of music. And then in high school and the college, I DJed. So that was my foray, really building on the foundation of piano lessons. My mom, she played a lot of classical music when I was a kid growing up. So that really grounded me in my love for music. And then from DJing, 
in college, my folks were like, hey, go into accounting. It's a great career path. Math-wise, it wasn't my strong suit. So shortly into my curriculum, I pivoted and I found my way in marketing. And from there, graduated and my first internship, I was fortunate enough to have an opportunity to work at Capitol Records. And that really secured my place. It was 1994. And my boss at the time, he gave me that shot. So I think I was really fortunate in being able to flourish in a great environment there. That's awesome. How did your family react to you going into the music business? Something that was great with my parents, especially my father, he was very supportive of any career path that I chose. And his mantra was, do what you're best at. If that passion's there, it'll translate into everything you do. Business-wise, my folks were very happy that I stuck with marketing. Accounting wasn't me. I was a creative. I knew it early on. And <laughs> they were really supportive. So that really helped. And having that first internship helped. I worked there from 93 to 2000 at EMI. And at the time, all the hits, there was Radiohead, Blind Melon. It was a great time for music. Tell us a bit more about those early days. What was that like? You just graduated. You're working at a really cool label with all those great artists. What was that like? You know, looking back, and I still have a lot of the photos and the memorabilia, and it was a great time in the industry. So many talented bands. I lived on the west side, so commuting to Hollywood and Vine, working right there at the Capitol Tower, the history, Nat King Cole, Frank Sinatra, Beastie Boys. Little did we know that it was such a prolific time with so many great artists. Being Asian American in the music industry, I worked for a subdivision of Capitol called The Right Stuff. We were our own label. And at the time, if you were Asian American, most of the time you were either in finance or accounting. So I was the minority carving away in the creative aspect. But I think the music industry, irrespective of race, color, creed, it's all about the music. Everyone coalesces and supports each other, the community outreach and collaborative community aspect is why so many of us still find that path. If you find that group of supporters, you really foster that. Have you ever felt like your ethnicity affected how people interacted with you in the industry? I think I was the exception to the rule. And also at the time, the period was U2's Joshua Tree. So I'm like, I want to be like Bono. So I had long hair. I was creative. I stood out in a cool, creative way. So I think that on top of being able to demonstrate and have the skill set help me flourish. So to answer your question, no, it wasn't really an issue. I think what did hinder me in an interesting way is because being Asian American, I had the baby face. I looked so young at the time. <laughs> so people were like, ah, oh, who's this young buck? He's wet behind his ears. But once you find your way, having great mentors, my boss, Tom Cartwright at the time, he was so supportive in everything I did. So I think that really helped. Yeah, definitely having people who advocate for you is great. I saw on your LinkedIn that you speak English, Japanese, and Vietnamese. How did you come to learn those languages? Japanese is something recent. About four years ago, I wanted to learn another language. I had visited Japan, so took some classes and got pretty far. It does help in business. I'm by no means completely fluent in Japanese. As far as Vietnamese, growing up as a child, my parents would speak to me in both English and Vietnamese. It's still something I strive to be better at, but the through line is learning a new language to me I hear the musicality in it. So that's yes. what I love about picking up or it's Farsi or Italian. Just it's great 
for the minds and brain. And obviously when we travel to a foreign country, being able to speak the local language, that's where that passion comes from. Yeah, we actually had an episode where we interviewed somebody who does brain research on bilinguals. And mm. she shared that when you're learning a new language, it develops your brain in a certain way, like parts of your brain that deal with language actually improve. And then if you're bilingual, you tend to do better at certain tasks that are not related to language at all, like creative solutions. Mm. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, I totally concur. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned that you didn't have any problems with the industry. And I was wondering if you've come across other colleagues who speak multiple languages, but maybe English is not their first language and whether you noticed that they were treated differently. Because I have some listeners who are in the music industry, on the industry side, very passionate, very creative people, but they have an accent. And it seems like it's really hard for people to see past that. And mm. again, they're assumed to be in the finance department or stuff like that. So I was wondering if you've seen that for other colleagues. Maybe at Capital, it was sort of that family vibe at the time during the 90s. And I didn't see it that much, but I think my bit of advice for those working through that is letting your work shine in that sort of speaks for your capabilities and confidence. I think it's a lost art with social media and those types of things. But when having a conversation with someone and face to face and seeing someone eye to eye and, and then things break down in, the, in a good way, so to speak, people look past those things. And the music industry to me, I think years back, deals were made there's the music, you sit down, you break bread, so to speak. And our word is our bond. So once you have that door open for you, and if you can prove yourself and deliver, then, you know, that is worth a million dollars. People continue to come back to you for your skill set. I think in their case, what happened was they delivered and then people took credit for their work and then they just oh, no. did not go the way they thought it was going to go. <laughs> yeah. So the accent combined with Asians being stereotyped. I was shocked when I heard some of those stories. I'm like, wow, because yeah. I don't have much of an accent anymore. <laughs> so I think people treat me like I'm an American. <laughs> but I think for people who don't have that American accent, it can be a lot harder. And then it becomes, do they assimilate or do they try to keep their identity and try to do it their own way? Yeah, yeah. So you're now the CEO of your own company, Blue Buddha Entertainment. Why was entrepreneurship the right choice for you? And then is there a cool story behind that name? I'll answer the second part first. At the time in 2002, when the company was formed with two other business partners, we were brainstorming various names. And Blue Buddha actually came from a lyric from a song, a band called My Life with a Thrill Kill Cult. And Blue Buddha, we're like, hey, that really sticks. That's cool. And from that, the artwork coalesced of Smiling Happy Buddha with headphones and our skill set was to deliver great music for the sync industry. It just so happened, you know, growing up, my mom was spiritual in Buddhism and it connected with what we were doing, working with independent artists. So that's how that name came about. And then your first question again was... Why was entrepreneurship the right thing for you? Why did you not go to some other company, for example, or get a promotion yeah. and stay there? Yeah. So having worked at Capital for about nine years and then inevitably in 2001, I was laid off. 
So position went away and my friend who brought me in, we formed Blue Buddha. It made great fit for me to pursue that route. So I had two other business partners, one of which he had his own company. So I found it a great opportunity to continue to grow. And it's one of those things you work for a firm, you give your life to them, so to speak, and then you're laid off and then you're sort of disillusioned. And I was young enough to be able to say, hey, let's give this a shot. What also helped is when I was at Capital, halfway through, I did go back to CSUN for my master's program. Being able to apply real-world experience in the classroom setting helped pave the way of becoming a business owner. Because over about two, three years, the other two business partners went on to other endeavors, and I've been running Boo Buddha ever since. So I think planetary alignment with a lot of luck and hard work at the end of the day. Yeah. So as a sync agent, have you seen any trends when it comes to Asian American representation in the sync industry? Definitely more opportunities. We had trends, not trends, but opportunities like the K-pop scene, media, films, Crazy Rich Asians, and basically films and shows that need authentic music in that given landscape. Back in May, we had a panel on AAPI, and that was one of the things that we talked about. If you're a AAPI artist, leading into one's culture and storytelling for authentic songs, because TV shows and films and media, invariably, they need authentic music that speaks to the narrative that's playing on screen. So it's a great time for independent AAPI artists, and that was an opportunity for Blue Buddha to continue to build our library, working with artists like Rubia Barra, LJ Bosco. As a sync agent, we need music across the board, all genres. A good song is a good song, but obviously opportunities present itself culturally. So I think it was a, a great fit. I guess what you're saying is that right now is a moment where leaning into the cultural identity is what's trending for API artists, right? Am I understanding you correctly? Correct, correct. Yeah. And I think it will continue to grow because I think it was Francesca Harding from KCW, and we were talking about the same topic. Years back, when Danny Boyle produced Slumdog Millionaire, then Bollywood or authentic songs from India. But now, I think post-pandemic, with streaming, there's so much independent films and feature films that are created. So the opportunities are limitless as far as whether it's by POC, AAPI, LGBTQ, the storytelling. And the storytellers need the authentic music to match. So that's what excites me every day on those opportunities. I think that's something that many artists struggle with too, is when it comes to being Asian American, there's still that American part that sometimes gets ignored a little bit. Like you have to lean into the Asian to be seen as Asian American. A lot of us also want to make music not just about identity, but about just being a person living in the world, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Actually, we talked about this on the episode with Sherry Hu. It's like we're in the crazy rich Asian moment of music where it has to be super Asian. <laughs> Good point. Yeah, that's interesting because I'm going to name a couple bands that came out in the 90s when I was at Capitol. One was Shona Knife from Japan, if I'm not mistaken. And then there was another band, Pizzicato 5. They were signed to Madonna's label. And they really leaned in, same with what they wore, their dress, and the sound was distinctly Asian. But interestingly, they were big, not necessarily globally, but geographically in certain markets. Like you said, it's very far, but it's not complete crossover. Yeah. So your company pays special attention to artist development. 
Can you give a specific example of how you bring all those elements together? Maybe one project that you're particularly proud of, how that all came together? Yeah, absolutely. So one approach that we do is at least on our Instagram reels every week, giving a platform to our independent artists, taking their artwork, their bio, their music, and putting it out there in packaging so that it looks like a record label, because I think that's important. So whether it's their fans or music supervisors, or decision makers who follow us. It's just another touch point. That attention to detail is something we do. All our marketing, anything forward-facing to our studios and producers, we make sure everything's packaged the right way. Because the music supervisor has thousands of pieces of music they can listen to. So we want to make sure that when they look at a Blue Buddha artist, there's something there. It's an aha moment. Because what excites me and the team, the common thread is help an independent artist. I've worked with many over the years. They get a placement and then they go on to bigger things. And to know that we were part of that team, there's no bigger joy. That's awesome. So when did AAPI representation become something that was on your mind and that you sought out in your professional environment? Coming out of the pandemic was an opportunity to look at our catalog and see opportunities in the marketplace productions, TV shows that we saw were coming through. And then also we would get more calls for specific music. So within those two years, when we weren't sure what was happening in the world, coming out of that, we had those opportunities to find more music in that specific lane. Yeah. What advice do you have for API artists starting out in the music industry today? The number one, I would say, Lazu, is one's community. Mentorship programs, mentees. We have a lot of links on our website that talks about programs with some of the artists we work with. We had executives from Netflix and Universal Pictures and things that they do. So that's an important component. Knowing that there's a community behind you, you're not alone in the process. One great nugget that came from Rudy Chung from Netflix is when you do have an opportunity to work with a mentor is be there all in. It's a rewarding experience for both the mentor and the mentee, fostering that relationship. And once you have that community, keep those relationships, collaborate over the years. Here in Los Angeles, we meet a lot of people and then the connection falls apart because time and distance. And traffic. But, <laughs> yeah. Most definitely. Yeah. Traffic. What's different from the 90s to say today? And I think I'm taking this from a Seinfeld episode pre-digital devices and cell phones. If we made an appointment to see a friend at a restaurant, you had to show up. You couldn't just text at the last minute. Something happened. I'm not going to be there. It's easy in Los Angeles to get caught up and falling through on commitments because it's tough as it is, you know, to find meaningful connections with colleagues and friends. But being there for our friends and colleagues and musicians, and when there are mixers, FaceTime, the more people we meet. So my big piece of advice, find that community and collaborate and keep the connections. Yeah. I'm assuming it's very similar, but for those who are interested in being on the business side of music, what's your advice other than what you just said? <laughs> when I came up, it was an old model of you had to go to school, you had to have a degree. Nowadays, there's so many resources out there, and that could be a blessing and in disguise. Folks can say, well, I learned this on YouTube. I found this information. YouTube could be one avenue, but going to school, supplementing, having different viewpoints of what you're learning 
learning and making sure who you're learning from, your mentors, what's their path. If, if you follow someone down a path and they don't have the credentials to back it up, that's not going to bode out well. So it's doing your homework, biggest thing, classroom, textbook, knowledge. It's the application of that is what's so important. And above all, being patient. Things take time. The industry up and down. Right now, we're going through a lot of drastic changes, external forces that are happening, things we can't control. So things we can control. If we're a musician, hone your craft, write great songs, and then find people you want to work with. Build your team. Yeah. This wasn't in the question, but since we're talking about changes, what are your thoughts on AI? Are you worried that it'll eat up into sync opportunities for indie artists if the AI gets decent enough to a point where it probably won't be great music, but it might be decent enough music that low budget productions might be like, you know what, we're just going to use AI. It doesn't matter what... <laughs> There, there might be those instances, but I think for those productions that want to maintain a high level of quality, they'll always go back to the try and true indie band. Because otherwise, if they follow that route, we're going to pay attention more to the song than the scene and say, oh, why was that scene so bad? Oh, it was the music. <laughs> What's your viewpoint on AI if I could ask you that? In terms of music, I have played around with ChatGPT, actually. We had a brief and we we're like, let's ask ChatGPT to write something. And of course, it came out a pretty crappy song but we're like this idea and that idea we could use that we could use that word we could use that word and that got us started on the song so i definitely see myself using ai in that way where it's not meant to replace me but more mm. a way to generate more ideas faster the rhyme schemes are usually horrible they're just <laughs> horrible so corny sometimes you get a couple of words there that you're like oh okay yeah i could use that so definitely yeah. use it i don't see it replacing creative stuff just mm -hmm. yet but i definitely see it as something i can use to generate more ideas fast when it comes to how the industry is gonna use it i think capitalism dictates that if they can they will <laughs> yeah you don't know when that's gonna happen but it probably will happen at some point. There's a lot of tools out there that are really helpful and I use every day. Like the editing software, I use lots of AI in it. Saves me a lot of time. I do a lot of editing on my podcast. But yeah, I think it is coming. Big changes are definitely coming. Yeah, it's a good a thread of everything that's happening between corporate America and writers, actors, working class actors who years back with the residuals, they can make a living. But now with inflation, prices in Los Angeles for rent, everything. And they're just saying, hey, you know, a fair decision has to be reached there. So yeah, they're making millions, if not billions of trillions of dollars for the work they created. But and not seeing it. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. It's and I think there's a lot of ethical dilemmas with AI because I don't know if you know this, but Spotify is working on AI for generating podcasts, right? So mm. you, they can train a model on a particular host and then read ads in that host's voice without the host ever having to read the ad. And that's a huge problem because wow. I think there's research that shows that if people listen to your podcast and they listen to you speak for more than seven hours, they trust you as a person because it's a very intimate medium, right? You hear mm. the person's voice like you're just right there. So then you have this ethical dilemma of, is that something that you should be able to do where you're putting words in mm. somebody's mouth that they never right. see? said, even if they agreed for that model to be trained, you're consciously duping people. Even if they know that it might not have been that person reading it, 
it's mm. still their voice. Like psychologically, you're manipulating yeah. people. Yeah. And then, of course, on the other side, they're like, all marketing is manipulating people. It's like, yeah, but that's a whole other level. That's not the <laughs> yeah. same thing. So there's yeah. a lot of yeah. ethical dilemmas about AI mm -hmm. and a lot of things that I'm like, mm, I really hope they don't do that. <laughs> there's a lot of regulation yeah. that needs to catch up, but yeah. definitely a lot of stuff there that people are rightfully freaked out about. <laughs> yeah, 100%. It goes back to what you said. It's all about the capital profit margin, sadly. For sure. Is there anything that's still on your bucket list when it comes to your career? We're in the process of launching a sync and songwriting online course, a masterclass that will teach live with my skill set of working with independent artists, hosting panels. We have our podcasts. It's a coalescing of everything. And I'm really excited about it because it's still a lot of mysteries and questions about sync. What better way to learn and have fun as an artist? All right. We like to close the interview with our rapid fire section. These are one word or one phrase answers. You can explain, but you don't have to. Okay. What's an Asian food that you should like, but don't? Should like, but don't. Oh, that's a good one. Because actually, I think <laughs> you like them all. I like them all. Whether so, I'm a Vietnamese American descent, but Filipino food, Chinese food, Vietnamese food, Korean food, and that's I think just my openness to trying everything. So I'll have to come back on that one. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Hopefully, the next question will be a little easier. What's an Asian food that you'll never get tired of? Definitely pho. The Vietnamese pho. What's your proudest achievement in music? I would say having worked with the team back at EMI with Al Green launching his greatest hits, the reissue records, and went platinum, meeting him back in the day, and he was performing live at the House of Blues. So that was early on in my career, and I'll always remember that. Awesome. What was the last song you had on repeat? Last song on repeat was, I would actually say it was one of U2's Sunday Bloody Sunday when he reworked it as part of his Surrender record. It was like an acoustic mix. And last one, what's your favorite Al Green song? Love and Happiness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't have to pause on that. It's that the opening hook is falsetto. And then when the uh, the drum section kicks in, and I want to even say, I think Karen Rackman, the music supervisor at the time for Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction, if I remember correctly, they sync Love and Happiness in a scene there. And I think that bookends my passion for music and the visual media, because when you marry music to picture, it creates another higher piece of art that we all remember both visually and orally and it sticks with us you see the scene you hear the music and we're lucky you know there's so many talented artists on the film production music side thank you so much for doing this thank you i appreciate you it was great to be on the show and great chatting here are our takeaways for today's episode. Number one, even in industries that are white dominated, there are some good mentors out there who can actually shield you from a lot of discrimination. So make every effort you can to find those supporters who will use their privilege to back you when you need them to. Number two, when you have the opportunity to work with a mentor, showing up and developing that relationship makes it more rewarding for both parties. As someone who has been mentoring podcasters and music producers, I 100% agree with that. Number three, because East Asians often have baby face, which means they look younger than they are, they're often assumed to be younger and less experienced than they actually are. So if you find yourself thinking an Asian colleague is likely too young or too inexperienced for a position, it might be a good idea to quickly check yourself and make sure that you haven't been fooled by our magnificent genes that we stole from the fountain of youth. And 
And number four, we are not a monolith, so our experiences vary widely. That's expected, and one does not invalidate the other. Charles, as an Asian American cis man, has a very different experience from Tony from season one, episode three, who is a non-binary artist, or Summer Sui Sing from season two, episode six, who's a woman professional pianist, or Danny Saldo, who is a disabled artist from season three, episode five. We exist across a broad range of experiences. Some of our experiences have been more positive than others. One does not cancel out the other. If you would like to hear more interviews from people in the music industry and people who are musicians, go to the website nuancespot.com under media, music. I have a list of all the music-related episodes there. There is also a Spotify and Apple Music playlist that I have curated from musicians who have been on the show and also other Asian diaspora artists that I personally enjoy. So if you want to check that out, that will be in the show notes as well as under that music tab on the website. As with every week, definitions, takeaways, links mentioned, and the full video and transcript are available in the show notes for this episode at nuancesbot.com. That's it for today. Next week will be our final episode of this season where we'll talk to Amanda B who hosts the delightful podcast Six Degrees of Cats where she finds impressive ways to bridge science, culture, human, and feline kind. We talk about her work in gender-based violence prevention and her experience as a Korean transracial and transnational adoptee. As you may know, when I'm not working on podcasts, I am a musician, songwriter, producer. Today's song is called Blur the Lines. I was hired as a composer to write this song specifically for this movie called Keep Digging. It's a short film, independent short film. The director wanted me to write this song with a specific style in mind, and he wanted the song to start when the last scene starts and build up to the very last shot, which is a cliffhanger moment. And then the song continues playing over the credits. I hope you enjoy. Here is For the Lines by yours truly. If you enjoyed this episode, there are so many ways that you can help spread the love. You can leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to right now. You can even make a one-time or recurring donation on our website, nuantespot.com support. Once again, I'm your host, Lazu, and I hope you'll join me next week for another Nuance Conversation.
struggling, struggling.